You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. Hey, I just got back from a long drive to see a piece of CNC machinery, and I think I'm going to buy it. So we have one CNC grinder. You don't do any grinding, right? Sure don't. You would never Except grinding on the daily. (laughs) (laughs) So we have one grinder, which when we bought it in 2016, it was to bring a surface grinding in-house and to use it as a process for grinding our rotovice bodies. So for those listening that don't know what a rotovice is, picture a vice, single station vice, duplicate it three other times so they're 90 degrees apart and spin that, attach it to a rotary. So we bought that. It's been great. We knew nothing. The brand that we have that, which originally I was a little hesitant to even talk about on social media because it we didn't know what we didn't know and we kept blaming the machine or the wheel, or it was really, a lot of it was us. Some of it, there was a servo that was, what's it called when they're not tuned and they hum? We were seeing that in the down feed motor of mm-hmm. the CNC wheel. I'm not grinder sure what that's wheel. called. Yeah. I, I think it's tuning or something like that, but they came out and service that. It's been rock solid since mid 2016, early 2017. But as volume has increased, we realized, man, if that grinder goes down, we're dead in the water. We're going to have to rush and outsource a lot of critical grinding. We grind five products in-house. And so I looked at it. It's a 10-year-old show model. The grinder we have now is 6 by 18. This is 12 by 24. Full CNC, exact same interface, which means a lot. That's standardization right there, lean lean practice. My one hesitation, I want to make a decision by the end of today, is do I go with a 10-year-old trade show machine, essentially a a display unit. Yep. Yeah. What are your thoughts? One of our machines on the floor was a showroom machine for Yamazin. Oh, that's right. And that machine's been great. We've had no crashes with it, no major problems with it. I don't think we've had a single service call on it Mm -hmm. since I bought that machine in 2020. Okay. I drive hail damaged cars. I like things where the premium has been scraped off the top and I don't care that much about cosmetics. Like the showroom 650 that we bought Mm-hmm. It obviously had some fixtures mounted on it for a while and had some table staining, not rust. Mm-hmm. It had been conditioned. It wasn't bad, but just it obviously wasn't new. Mm-hmm. And I went, great. I'm going to put a pallet right in the middle of that stain. I don't care. doesn't matter to me. It's a non-issue. Yeah. The only concern I would have more about a if it was a trade show machine versus mm-hmm. a showroom machine mm-hmm. is lots and lots and lots of cycles of rigging and moving. Yeah. That was my concern. And that would give me a little more pause. I would probably want to get, if I was going to buy it, I'd want to get something in writing that gave me at least some safety period Mm -hmm. where if there's like weird things where some fitting or something else has worked its way loose and something fails that I've got some kind of additional coverage for the first six months or 12 months, whatever. Do you know if the machine's currently being run every day? Well, I drove down there and they wired it up. It is not running every day. It's on a pallet and it's specifically designated to move to shows. Okay. So hydraulics worked, everything moved. I asked him, I said, hey, so can you give me a year warranty on this? And the guy went, yeah, because you're local. And I went, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, if you were in like Phoenix, we would have to send a technician out there because we don't have coverage 
in that area. And I went, okay, well, that makes sense. He was hemming and hawing about the travel associated with that. But honestly, if it doesn't work day one, that's an obvious, hey, this is a lemon. Yeah, It was something that the, the Sharp Factory made probably, I'm going to guess, a small amount. The terminology they use is it's an Okamoto killer, which is pr- like a low off-brand, like Sharp saying, hey, we're going to kill the top of the line grinder. It's a little prideful, I'd say. The number of times in my space that I've heard companies say, this new pistol's coming out, it's a Glock killer. And I'm like, man- yeah. You're going to come at the king. You best not miss. The Glock has been on top of the heat for a long time. Yeah, exactly. So there was that type of verbiage. It's an experienced brand. We have a customer relationship. I've looked at the Okamoto's, but the problems that I've seen with our grinder or with our grinding process is what I've found inherent with all grinders. Okay. And so I go, okay, well, as long as we know that this is a potential for a defect, All we need to do is create a process, a lean process that takes care of that. So I'm okay with that. So I do think I'm going to pull the trigger on it. So it's about 35% off, which I really like. Yeah. If I was buying a machine that was 10 years old and had traveled Mm -hmm. a bunch, I would get that extra year warranty, get that one year warranty because you're local. And then when I got that machine, I would move as much work onto it as quickly as possible as I could. And I would just try to put miles on that machine. That's great. Because if something's going to fall apart, Mm -hmm. I would rather find out sooner rather than later. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Every problem we've had with our Haas machines manifests itself quite literally in the first month. And uh, so, yeah, we would run it. We would probably shelve, in theory, shelve our current grinder and just move all the work over there. So- yeah, you wouldn't actually good. run them in parallel? Is there any oh, oh. setup advantage to having dedicated stuff on one and another for certain products? I don't think so, no. With CNC grinding, you almost don't want to work in bigger batches. You, if you're off on the tolerance, you just scrapped a lot of parts. Yeah, I'm not talking about bigger batches. I don't have any grinding experience. I've seen that magnetic chucks are one of the most common work holding solutions there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if... If I had to do any changeovers in the work holding to switch from this product to that product, mm. I would probably prefer to have one machine set up for each just so that if I needed to make five of something, I've got a machine already set up for that thing and just go run it. Yeah. So the setups are standardized. The thing is with grinding, it's a magnetic chuck. That's the okay. setup. Yeah. Great. Yeah. We don't Easy have peasy. Like grinding fixtures or anything like that. We actually did some one-piece flow. We were talking about batch sizes this morning in our morning meeting and actually did some one-piece flow races where I gave three different employees the same task and I had two of them go head-to-head batching versus one-piece flowing and each one had another employee with them with a lap timer and we were checking time to first completed set. They were just putting together hardware kits. Really simple. Time to first completed set time to completion of 10 sets. And then the third guy just ran for time. He wasn't a head-to-head, but he got to watch the guy doing batches before him and then make changes to the batch process in terms of how it was laid out and which steps he did in which order to make the batch more efficient to run. And he did shave time. Batch two ran faster than batch one, but both batch two and batch one were over 30% slower than the person doing one-piece flow. Wow. And The biggest difference was not in the overall time, but the fastest batch person, batch two, 
took almost 10 times as much time to get the first finished unit done. One wow. piece flowing in heart and in hardware kits. Yeah. The first kit was done in 22 seconds. Right. Yeah. And okay. in batch, mm -hmm. the first kit was done anywhere from two minutes and 40 to three minutes and 40. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, this is a really great example. Imagine if each of these steps took an hour. Mm. If the ratio stayed the same, if the difference between the one piece flow was the first parts are ready four hours from now versus the first parts will be ready four days from now. Mm -hmm. And the amount that changes how you steer the production ship is huge. Yeah. I'm and aside on production, real quick, yeah. something happened recently that I'm never gonna, I don't ever want to have happen again. Okay. My facilities manager, my operations manager, and my shipping manager were all on vacation for the same week. <laughs> Welcome to July, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And the start of their vacations overlapped with the last day of me being gone for four days for a family wedding out of town Yeah, in New York. And what ended up happening was we really didn't have a good handoff. And I came back, they'd all been gone for a full day. I was coming back in on a Tuesday morning and trying to catch up with all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And my production manager, that one Monday, I was gone, facilities was gone, shipping was gone, and operations was gone. And the production manager was trying to do everything for the whole company that day. He said, please don't do that to me again. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, all right, Seth, noted. Next time Brian and Ben both want to be out and Anthony wants to be out at the same time, we'll just make them rock, paper, scissors for it, and somebody's vacation's getting canceled. Yeah. did Okay, so 4th of July was on a Tuesday. Did people take off that week? Did a lot of guys take off Monday? It was weird. Sunday, we had a power outage. We had a big storm. Sunday night, we were out of power, and Monday morning, we were out of power. So we kept the shop closed. Around lunchtime, the power came back on. So myself and two other employees, the production manager and the operations manager, the three of us came in and did some work, had some meetings, shipped. We basically pulled everybody who'd ordered express shipping, which is supposed to go out same day or next day, and made sure that those got packed up and driven to the post office. And then Tuesday was the fourth, everybody was off. And then later that week, we had another power outage. So it was a really, it was a weird week. It was just, mm. it's a wow. mess. And then I, at the end of that week, I left for vacation. To not experience this again, you would top out the number of people that could be gone at the same time? I would, what I'm probably going to do is put something like a periodic review of upcoming scheduled vacation mm -hmm. because it's one thing for individual employees to think to themselves, I need to let Andrew know I'm going to be gone these dates. Yep. It's a different thing to think <clears throat> I'm the lead person for this sector of the shop. I need to coordinate with the other lead people so that not more than two key people are out at the same time. Now, a day here or there, fine. Yeah. A week or more where several key people are gone, it just really stacks up. I think there's a law in California, you can't contact employees outside of business hours or their hours. Yep. Were any of your guys that were on vacation, could you shoot them a quick text or? I could in a pinch. I sent one or two texts to them, but I really try to respect my employees' vacation time. I really yeah, try sure. not to bug them. I am often a nighttime worker and I work on weekends usually. I don't work on Sundays generally, mm -hmm. uh, although I'll occasionally answer emails from home, but I don't come into the shop on Sundays. Mm -hmm. But my standard operating 
procedure is if I send you a text or an email after business hours, I have no expectation that you're going to read it or respond to it until the next day. If I have an emergency, Mm -hmm. I will call you. Okay. Yeah. And so if we have an emergency, I make phone calls. Mm-hmm. If something comes to mind and I'm out and about, I'm like, hey, if I don't fire off this question to Ben right now, I'm going to forget it and it's important. Mm-hmm. I will just shoot the text off and then say, well, let's talk about this tomorrow morning for tomorrow. Da 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 da. Yeah. And prefacing a message or an email with for tomorrow, I find is really helpful because, you know, when something comes up on your phone and you can preview the subject line and marry the very beginning of the message or see the yeah. short part of the text, if it says at the very beginning, this is not urgent. You don't have to read it for now. You don't have to respond right now. Just for tomorrow or mm-hmm. for Friday, Yeah. this. Do you guys use Signal, the Signal app inside your company? We don't. We were talking in a morning meeting last week. Mm-hmm. We had done a shop-wide group text, just cell phone text message, group text message for lean improvements in the shop. And mm-hmm. the problem is anytime somebody joins, anybody time you add somebody to the company or somebody leaves or gets laid off, you then have to kill that group and start a fresh one because you can't easily add and subtract people. And so I wanted to find a way to have a more flexible group. One option is WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Signal is another. And I basically polled my employees. I'm like, how many of you use WhatsApp? They're all like, what? And I'm like, how many of you guys, how many of you use, I think two of my employees had ever used WhatsApp before. Okay, all right. And I don't think anybody had used Signal. Okay. Yeah. That sounds about right. Okay. Well, we've used, well, back in the day we would do SMS mm-hmm. and then we moved to Voxer because it had a walkie talkie feature, which is great. I think you could shoot like 15 seconds of video or you to go over that, you'd have to upload a video and then it, that stopped working. Then we went to WhatsApp and probably two, three years ago, I had some privacy concerns for that being a Facebook product. And I get now I deleted off my phone, but I'm back on because some people at church, they use it for the different groups I'm in. So I'm a reluctant WhatsApp user again, and I get spammed like crazy on it. Really? But, but Signal is nice because obviously I think they're a nonprofit or a low profit or something. I don't know what they are. I donate 20 bucks a month as a kind of a power user to cover everyone in the company, but it's secure. It's everything SMS does, but better. Yep. One of the things I love is if I will type out a bunch of stuff like for tomorrow, and then you can delay send. So you pick the day and time. So it'll be tomorrow morning at eight. It has three out of the four choices. It's like later today, later tonight, tomorrow morning, or pick the date and time calendar wise. That's great because then I have textual proof that I did not message you outside of work hours. So that's just the one thing that I really like. And I do want to respect my employees too. So yeah. I think the only person I talk to on WhatsApp is John Grimsmo. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah. Our Canadian buddy. <laughs> and a few other folks from other countries. Sure. Uh, but I use Signal every day. I like okay. Signal a lot. It works well. So with who do you use it with? Family? Friends? Family and friends. Mostly friends. Uh-huh. I'm in a couple of ongoing group chats of shared interest to people from different companies in my okay. industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, also people that I've gone and done training or traveled to events or trade shows with. Oh, sure. And we keep running tabs on who's going to be traveling where for what stuff. I see. And people are like, hey, I'm going to be in Phoenix or I'm going to be in this place or I'm going to be in Vermont next week for this thing. Anybody else going to be there? Mm. And it's just a, it's a fun group of folks, wide range of experiences, some military, some law enforcement, some competitive shooters, a mm. whole bunch of people with different backgrounds. And it's really That's fun. Cool. Okay. Yeah. 
see, what was the issue you were running into? Oh, when people come and Adding go. and subtracting people from SMS. Because we've, we've had to let a few people go. And then just, just on a Friday, we just delete them from the group and the group continues. And you have all that historical data, that record, yep. which is really nice. So do you foresee a need to use a group texting in your company besides SMS? What we have used the group SMS for is mostly just showing off lean improvements. Anytime oh. I spot a lean improvement, I grab a quick picture or a quick video and share it to the group because I want everybody to see. Right. And it's also a great way for me to give credit where it's due. I just saw this great improvement at Riley's station. This is uh-huh. what she did. And here's a 10 second video of her showing you how it works. That's good. That is valuable to us. We also use it in addition to emailing people. If we're like, hey guys, we just found out the power went out at the shop. It's 9.30 at night on a Sunday. The shop is going to be closed tomorrow. I will confirm that with you by 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. If there's any change, we're going to do a delayed start at this time. And I text that to everybody. Yeah. And then a few folks I also email and one or two I may also call. Okay. Oh, so good. kind of emergency messaging, but primarily for lean improvements and things. Hey, we kind of got on a tangent, but let me go back to One Piece Flow. Yeah. Probably I posted this on Instagram. You'd have to scroll way back to 2016, 17, maybe even 18. But I built our vacuum power units. So our VPUs, they take high pressure compressed air and convert it to a deep vacuum. So I built five of them and I built them a batch. And then I also did one piece flow. One piece flow is like, if you're a practitioner of lean, that's the way to do it. One piece flow. But actually batching them and building one at a time was faster. Do you have any ideas why? Like I know the answer, but do you have any ideas why? When you say batching them and building them one at a time. Yeah. Okay. I don't understand. Maybe I'm confusing. I have five vacuum power units. One piece flow would be, you have five in front of you and you do step one, you put like an O-ring in the first one, O-ring in the second, O-ring in third. Okay. Would that be- That's batching. That's batching. Okay. Yep. And then I would build them one at a time. So I'm working on one at a time and I do the O-ring. Then I do step two, step three. And then by the end of step 15, it's done. Then I start back at step one at a second one. And then we built five. Doing them that first way where you do all of step one, all of them do step two, all of them through step three. That was actually faster. Which In overall time. Yeah. Right. The difference though is if you're relying on a pull system and the first finished units are actually in demand to ship immediately, mm-hmm. then the, diff- the delta between what time you got the whole batch finished versus what time you got the first finished one piece flow unit available to ship. True. In, a, in an example like yours, it probably didn't matter. Yeah. In other examples, if you were building a bunch of cars, like we've got 30 cars to build and the truck trailer is going to be here today, we need to get 10 cars on that trailer, we can either get steps one through three done on all 40 cars, Uh or we can get 10 done all the way loaded and out the door today. Yeah, That kind of model, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of things we do are actually a mix of batch and one piece flow because assemblies contain Mm sub-assemblies and sub-assemblies contain Mm sub-assemblies. And in a lot of cases, certain things like putting together hardware kits Every little hardware kit's a self-contained thing with maybe eight to 15 pieces in it. No big deal. A couple of screws, a couple of washers, a couple of different sizes of small things. I like to one-piece flow each kit, but do a batch of kits at a time. 
So, so, so break that down. You're, you have a Ziploc bag, five fittings need to go in, or just hardware needs to go in it. Right. You do all so five. For me, the one piece flow is I touch the bag one time. I pick it up. I open it up. I go this com- component, A, B, C, D, E, close it up, done. Mm-hmm. But if I only actually need that day, I may only need nine of those kits. I'm not making those kits on demand. I'm making a batch of those kits as a subcomponent. Because when demand for the final product actually comes in, I might assemble and kit that on demand, but I want to grab subcomponent A, subcomponent B, subcomponent C, mm-hmm. package them up and send that out the door. If somebody orders French fries, I don't want to start with, all right, start washing the potatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a balance there where certain things fit well into the mix of the day where it's like, okay, I've got 10 minutes to kill. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down and build 20 hardware kits. Mm-hmm. Super yep. easy, requires zero setup, zero prep, just the bags are there, the hardware's there, everything's in color-coded bins. All the stuff from green bins goes in the green hardware bag. All the stuff in yellow bins goes in the yellow hardware bag. And we have a master kit mm-hmm. of each hardware bag at the station where they get assembled so you can see complete which bag it takes, what sticker label goes on it, and the contents of that bag. In addition yeah. to a list, there's a master kit to look at. Mm-hmm. It is super easy to sit down and just crank out some stuff. Batching it would be like, I lay out 20 bags and I put the first screw at each of the 20 bags. Then I put Mm -hmm. the second thing at each of the 20 bags. And at the end, then I bag up the contents of each thing and seal them up. I don't like that method at all because it clutters the workspace with a bunch of partially completed kits. And Mm -hmm. if you've ever handled hardware, the chance that you drop something and it's hit something else and all of a sudden a bunch of hardware is just pinballed across your table. And then you have to go back and resort the kits back together. That's really easy to do. And even today, watching two different employees do hardware kits by batch, we had defects when they were laying out this component across a bunch of things. At one point, someone just skipped one by accident and didn't put these two rubber washers in that kit. Mm -hmm. And it was really illuminating to see that even in a batch that small with that limited number of components, doing it with people watching, that it was just super easy to make a small mistake like that. Small hardware pieces that look relatively similar. It's way easier to go two of these, two of these, two of these, two of these, one of that, close it. Mm -hmm. And I want to see my employees flexing that muscle more often of looking at the things that they're doing and consciously choosing If I need to build 50 of this thing, I might actually put the stickers on 50 bags first because handling the adhesives and peeling, that is a a step, a micro step in the build that I think works well batched. In that experiment, me Mm -hmm. batching them was actually faster because, and I realized we weren't wasting motion. Like when I go to put in the socket head cap screw, I would grab five of them and I would pre place them in the countersunk bores. And then I would pick up one Allen wrench and do it. And I wasn't picking up and putting down the drivers. So that's where it got faster. But you're risking the possibility of a defect times five rather than times one. So Paul Akers will say safety, quality, simplicity, speed. That's the order in which you want to knock things out. So quality, there would have been a potential defect which breaks the quality requirement for the speed 
And so you're putting speed before quality there. Yeah. Not a trade-off I like to make. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. But even there, I I remember I really liked the idea of pokey oak trays. Yep. We don't use that many of them. We use it occasionally. But the idea that if I'm building one thing, my first step can be pre-stage all the components that go into this one thing. Mm -hmm. And I know at the end, if I have anything left over, I messed up the assembly. That's right. That is, I find for me, a really helpful tool that takes a category of things that I would have to keep in mind mentally Mm -hmm. and just takes them out. Yeah, we now. do that now. Yeah, we pre-populate. We have 3D printed trays yeah. where you can't grab a handful of screws and put them in like a divot. You yeah. put each screw in a hole so you can't even screw up pre-populating your pokey tray. Yep. That's the way to do yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Honestly, a lot of things we build, the assembly won't go together mm-hmm. if you are missing a component. Like if you don't have all the stuff in there, when you put it together... The screw bottom's out and it won't get tight. If you Got left it. out the spacer, it just, it won't work. Yeah. And those kinds of self-checking assemblies, I really like. Yeah. You don't always have those. And there are often little subtle mistakes you can make. We have build sheets and we have links to instruction videos. And I was just actually just listening to Devin Bodoni and Uriel's incremental podcast. And they were talking about how they create new training documentation. And what we've done in the past often is text with labeled photos, Mm because I want people to be able to zoom in and really see in detail in a photo what's going on. And that takes some time to coordinate. You got to set things up. You you might hold them in position. You get somebody else to take the photo. Then you've got to organize those. Then you've got to put some text overlay on them and label them and you can create a document. But the nice thing is if you need to edit the document, you can just edit the document and you can swap out a photo where if you shot a five-minute video, you either have to edit it, punch in a correction, and then repost the video, or just scrap it and start over again. It's kind of like the SMS message thing. Mm -hmm. I shot a 20-minute video. 10% of it's now obsolete. Do I reshoot the entire thing? And what they were saying is anytime they're teaching an employee a new thing, they have the employee just take an iPhone and hold it kind of down by their chin where it's seeing what they're seeing when they watch the demonstration. And so yesterday, our newest employee who's been here only a couple of weeks, was getting a rundown on the couple of different softwares that we use to print thermal labels because we have some zebra printers and some dymo printers and a couple of other things. We keep different kinds of labels loaded into them for different things. Some of our products get a very light adhesive, tear-resistant, removable label. If we want to put something on and say, hey, scan this QR code for instructions for this product, but we do not want it to tear when they remove it, and we don't want it to leave a residue on the product. So we have our product labels, we have instruction removable labels, we have larger shipping labels. We've got probably at any given time, six or seven different sizes of labels loaded into various printers in the shop so that anytime you need a thing, you don't have to go find the labels and then choose a printer and then unload the labels that are in there and then load the next ones. You can just go to the printer that's got the labels you need, select that one, print. And that has saved us a bunch of setup time, which is nice. But we still, you run out labels, the roll finishes out. You have to open the machine up, take that out, put the next one in, preload it, get it all set up. And so I was explaining to Riley and showing her how to do all this. And I just had her hold my iPhone. Yeah. And it took me two and a half minutes to walk her through loading and unloading the Dymos and the Zebras, and then show her the two different softwares we normally use and explain. And we do things like we have a couple of the Dymo 
dual label writer 450s right where you've got side by side you can load two different sizes but you have to in the software select which side you want to send to but we make throwaway files any common formatting thing that we use like this is going to be a two by four label with two different sized lines of text over under we make that we put throwaway as the text so when you open it you can see it's a throwaway file and then we save it on the desktop of that computer that's connected to that printer so you can walk up, look at the printer, and we actually taped the labels to the outside of the printer over each outfeed hole. So you can see the left side's this one, the right side's that one. But we didn't actually peel the labels and stick them to the printer. We just tore off a label, left the backer on, and taped it in place. So if we need to change it, we easily can because those labels shred if you try to peel them up. Right. Wow, that's funny. Quick, funny side note is one day I walked out into the shop and here's one of my guys, because we do the same thing. He's holding a GoPro by a bracket in his mouth (laughs) because he just couldn't get that great overhead shot of an assembly. He just needed that like isometric view. And I'm like, is does GoPro make a mouth, like a a bite thing where you can hold something in your mouth? If not a headband. (laughs) They make a headband. Why did why do we not own one of those? Or a chest strap. I gave him one of those, yep. but I thought that was funny. But the video came out beautiful. It looked like I was actually doing it. So That's really cool. My yeah, sister just oh. had some car work done and she told me that the garage she went to sent her a 20-minute video of the mechanic doing the work. Whoa. Like mechanic was wearing a GoPro, probably yeah. head mounted. Yeah. And he was narrating Okay, now I'm checking this fluid. Now I'm checking that. Oh now we're going to do this thing. Now we're going to change this. And she gets a full end-to-end walkthrough of the inspection and work on her car. And they upload it and then text her a link. That's amazing. Your car's done. It's time stamped. Here's the record and proof of work that we did. Wow. They don't call it proof of work. Yeah. But as anybody else who's ever gotten their car back from a garage and wondered, Boy, they did their complimentary 99-point inspection. I wonder, did yeah. they really? Or more so, like, they said this was bad. I don't know what that even is. Do we just blindly trust them and say, okay, yeah, how much is it? 400 bucks. Okay, go ahead and do it. What does that look like? Man, that solves all the problems associated with distrust with mechanics. That's fantastic. Yeah, I really like that solution. And as the mechanic, it's not some complicated Like after you're done with the repair, we're going to supply tons of complex documentation that you need to sit down and fill out. It's not a thick stack of paperwork. It's just while you're doing the work, you're talking to yourself and you do the work and the job's done. There's basically no extra work except for put the thing on and hit play, hit record. Right. And your customers are going to be so astonished by this. They're going to tell all their friends. Yeah. My sister works at an optics company. They do a lot of lean stuff. But it made such an impression on her. It was so unlike any experience she'd had Uh at a mechanic shop before. She's like, hey, check this out. These guys just sent me a video of my entire inspection. Man, that's incredible. I love it. And it's not that hard or expensive to do. Right. Yeah. You got to have a server, someplace to upload the videos, and you got to have a camera for each mechanic who's working in the base. But that's such a value proposition for the customer. Yeah. It's worth so much more to them than it costs you to give it to them. Totally. Yeah. Okay, I don't know how Twitch works, but you probably just live stream that and it has an archive of it. Then you're not over-processing by, oh, I forgot to press play on the GoPro. 
you know, that type of thing. Yeah. There's yeah. probably a lot of little hacks available to make that as efficient as possible. Yeah. There certainly would be a customer privacy sure. issue. You wouldn't want to be just dumping video onto a live stream platform. Right. Yeah. Unless you could make sure that it was password protected. It was yeah. invite only. Or at the least like an unlisted, unlisted thing where someone could crack it with a brute force. Okay. Yeah, so even I there though, unlisted videos of a client's car could be weird. But if you don't know whose car it is. Yeah. Well, I don't know if in the video, you have to be careful to not accidentally show the license plate or the VIN. True. That's a little weird. Yeah, it's true. So I follow this channel because I'm really digging into like home construction and just construction in general, because we're doing our office build out. Right now we're doing phase, what is it? I don't know what I called it on camera. Phase three, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's phase 3.1, I guess you could say, and which is our assembly room, because that actually does yield more revenue. But there's a YouTube channel called NS Builders, and they are a home builder, and they're high-end. And I love the owner. I think his name is Nathan or Nick. It's N something. He has such a high-end approach to building and their attention to detail is just impeccable. Like It's inspiring to me and I feel like we're hyper-focused on detail and process. But one of the things I really liked is before they put drywall on the interior, they go through with a scanner that's kind of like a laser scanner or it's like one of those scanners where you can move in almost like Google Maps type thing, street view. He says, we want to create a historical record of where things actually are, not what the plans say they are and where they are. And then that way, if we have to service anything or in 10 years, the customer wants us to do a renovation, obviously they're going to come back to us. We can see, oh, we had to move the hot water line to another whatever bay of studs 16 inches over. Yep. And so it was such a, a small thing. He said, yeah, does it take more time? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. From two points, customer confidence and the quality standards that you've already created this record for future work. Yep. And so I really wanted to do that in our assembly room because I'm telling them, oh, wow, I totally forgot that we want ethernet in the walls. Wait a minute, ethernet standards change, I feel like every five to 10 years. What if cat 6e is suddenly terrible and we need to go to cat seven? Where is that ethernet? Where does it drop? How far does it go? Do we put it in conduit? All those things. And I want to rent one of those scanners or even just do a walk around. I guess that's the poor man's way of doing a. Yeah. But it's that type of thing. Did you take like pre move in photos when you moved into your building by chance? Certain things, yes. There uh-huh. weren't a lot of places where we were opening up walls and stuff. We actually had an enormous amount of trouble in the first fall we were here. We had a water main leak mm-hmm. and had to have a company come out and excavate that. And the previous owners could not tell us where the water main was. We knew where the meter was. And we knew there's one location in the building that has water supply, two bathrooms and next to them, a little break room with a sink. But we did not know whether it had run straight from the meter under the slab across to that point or around the building perimeter to that point. And we knew there was geothermal in the field along that side of the building. So we don't want the guy that's going out there with a mini excavator and just digging discovery trenches. Mm-hmm. And so we basically started at the meter, did a little discovery trench, found the pipe, and then based on its angle and direction, tried to move out gradually and find it. And we ended up having tons of trouble Mm. locating it all the way to the building. We eventually went to the building where we thought it was, dug down there, found it, and just 
trenched in a new one. Yeah. Got rid of the old one. Didn't even bother to try to find the leak and repair it. Just new line. Yeah. And then we documented the crap out of that. And we had to have, what else did we have done? We had some other work done recently where we had to have a site survey where they put the flags in for all your utilities and all this stuff. And I hired a drone pilot to come and do altitude stills and a video flyover scanning the field where our geothermal and our septic and all those utility markers were. So we knew where our gas line were. We knew where the water main was. We have all that stuff. We have that on record now. Wait, so is this a specialized drone pilot that can map it? Okay. No, just a drone pilot, just video. Right. Wait, what is geothermal? So geothermal is a, it's a heat sink. It's connected to our HVAC system. So it's a series of coils of water filled water line out in the ground that in the winter help you kind of like a heat pump. Essentially you get ambient heat from the earth and in the summer it helps cool your AC. So it's either dissipating or absorbing. Yep. Depending on the ambient temperatures. How deep is it? I don't know. I think Mm. it's probably two to three feet deep. Oh, okay. All right. It's fairly fairly shallow. You would have to be deep enough to not freeze. Yeah. But oh sure. Yeah. Cause when I think geothermal, I think, well, you go down 80 to 100 feet where the earth is always at 62 degrees or something like that. But geothermal systems, as far as I understand, are generally either larger fields shallow or a smaller field deep. Copy that. And okay. I think the smaller field done to depth is quite a bit more expensive to do. Mm-hmm. But if you have space constraints. Yeah. Does the ground freeze where you're at? Not a lot. Okay. Sometimes. Okay. Doesn't freeze deep. We don't get like, for the next 90 days, it's not going to break 10 degrees. Okay. We don't get that here. Got it. But when we moved into our new house, which was a year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. by the time we saw the house and decided to put an offer on it, it was new construction, but it was basically done. It was all drywall painted, carpet was in. We were just waiting for a few major kitchen appliances and a punch list of touch-up work. That was all Mm -hmm. that was left when we saw the house. So I didn't have a good idea where a lot of the stuff in the walls was. But just down the street from us, a couple months later, the builders, same builders, were building the identical floor plan. Another house, same floor plan. Like, great. Nice. When they've got all the studs in and they've run all the water lines and everything, I'm going to walk through that house and video it all. Mm -hmm. So I've got a record of how they do this floor plan. Great. First project I tried to do in my new house where I relied on that video to tell me the location of electrical feed lines to an outlet box so I could know which stud space I could safely cut out and get into this wired completely differently, routed completely differently. Yeah. Yep. That's why. (laughs) And I'm like, once I, basically they closed off the empty space under the stairwell Mm. and didn't turn it into a closet, just drywalled it up dead space. I'm like, well, we could totally have a fun storage space, a couple, yep. you know, a Harry Potter room for the kids to play in, whatever. Totally. I went back over the video and I checked like, okay, three stud spaces from the corner here, that, that, that stud space is clear. I can sawzall out a chunk of drywall right there, put a little hole in, put the sawzall in, immediately hit some Romex. Oh. I was going super slow. I didn't okay. like arc out and wreck my saw. So okay. I'm going chug, 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 hang on. I felt something that was not drywall. And I was running slow enough that the saw blade had grabbed the Romex and wiggled it back and forth. Uh, yeah, right. But I hadn't cut it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, that's not supposed to be there. <laughs> and so I very carefully hand sawed around it, took that section of drywall out, and then got in that space and looked around at the rest of the wiring in that whole wall. I'm like, 
oh, this is totally different from my video. Like they pulled this circuit from over there. And in this other house, it was pulled from over there. This is totally different. Yeah. Wow. When we bought this current house, we bought it from the original owner that was here for 18 years. And they went through, and she's pretty finicky. They went through, and we've got literally hundreds, maybe three or 400 photos of our house, our current house under construction. Awesome. That has helped me because when we did, wait, what did we do? We did, I did something. Oh, I installed a whole house fan. So you put it in the attic and then it just pulls air from the interior of your house, push it into the attic and out the vents, both the grates and what are called O'Hagan vents. And I just needed to drop a line somewhere and I could see, oh yeah, there's no... So picture two studs going up from floor to ceiling and then halfway through, there's like a brace. I've heard it called like a fire break, but it's not really called that. There were some rooms that had those braces between two by fours. And really, I think all it does is help straighten boards for the drywallers. Yep. And I was able to go, oh, I need to go, oh, I need to drop down in this wall because this wall doesn't have it. Dropped it down. I could hear it. I even bought like a, what are those scopes? Yeah. It was actually a lot of fun besides the fact that I almost got heat stroke from being in the attic in June in California. That snuck up on me. That was really scary because I was like laying in the shower with the coldest water you can run for 20 minutes trying not to throw up. It was crazy. So the worst $700 I did not spend because the guy came to my door. He said, we'll do the whole package for call it 1700. A thousand I knew was the price of the fan. The 700 was the labor. Worst $700 I never spent. And it trumped the $300 that I didn't spend by demoing the tiles out of the kitchen when that was a total messy job builder grade tiles, they would have taken it out for 300 bucks. And I'm like, no, it's 300 bucks. I'm doing it myself. So worst money I ever saved. Yes. Yes. That's perfect. Worst money I ever saved. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I think I'm going to do that, go through and film everything. And I've had change orders. Like we were going to go with a dual garage door system and I'll put it, you know, we're going to do a full video on YouTube, but we're now down to just one garage door because of the flow and really, the with five new products coming on this year, we actually need a little bit more space. The garage door is going to roll up and there's going to be racks there. So mm-hmm. the forklift comes in, garage door goes up, you set it down so we're not handling things multiple times. It just goes from skid to assembly table rather than skid to then a cart or something, then to a pre-assembled rack, then to the assembly stage. It's just, you come in with the forklift, you raise the garage door, drop it off, no over-processing, no wasted motion. But we're going like to that. do that. Yeah, it's a great concept, but dual garage doors was actually pretty pricey. Oh, dude, this is really irritating. So I know what construction stuff should roughly cost. So the garage door guy came out and he's serviced us in the past, both my home and two shops ago, when we got the quote, it was literally like he came to the final conclusion and then he said, double it. And I asked my general contractor, I said, hey, this quote, it feels like it's double. Let me poke around the internet because I feel he's doing this ridiculous markup on the door. And yeah, I was right. It's about double. And I said, hey, how long do you think it would take for him to knock this out? He said a day and a half. That's what I thought. I quoted two days. This guy doesn't work more expensively than a lawyer does. I'm sorry, I'm not paying 800 bucks an hour for a garage door. I could spend four or five days with the crew with some beers on a weekend and knock this out watching YouTube 
I hate thinking like that, but I'm not going to spend close to $30,000 for two garage doors when it should be closer to 10 or 12. And they're really nice garage doors. You would see them in a Porsche dealership, that type of thing. So we're going to cut that down. We're probably going to DIY it because that 10, 15 grand that we could save can go a long way somewhere else. Because ultimately- With doors like that though, you better get a Porsche. Man, don't tempt me. <laughs> we don't have hail damaged Porsches out here. So that's all. We don't have sure. them either. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So, oh dude, can, I got to tell you, we are hiring for several positions for assembly. Over the years, we've had multiple assembly guys that just, they couldn't either follow directions or we give them literal like instruction sheets. And then weeks later, they're varying from it. And we go, why'd you do it that way? Oh, I don't know. I just thought it'd be easier. Or I don't know, which is a terrible answer. Just follow the process. So there's something there that we want to get to the bottom of. We've had some guys that just can't assemble on day one. So we bought a Lego set, a telehandler. And it's 140-ish pieces. To get a baseline of what is to be expected, we're having pretty much most of the guys that want to in the company assemble it. And I say, don't rush, don't do anything, like just get it right, right? Safety, quality, simplicity, speed. Speed is the least of it. So we got a pretty good general, like average. Some of the guys on the faster side build it in about 22 minutes. And it's a first time build for everybody. First time. Yeah. So 22 minutes on the low end up to about 38, 39 minutes on the high end. The first guy that we interviewed, great guy, checked all the character boxes was, yeah, everything was great. And we gave him the Lego test. It took him 49 minutes and it had three glaring flaws where the telehandler portion that goes up and down would not even go all the way down to the floor. And I was just lamenting going like, this guy, it looks great on paper. It was someone else conducting the interview. His name is Ben. And Ben and I were just saying, man, do we take a risk? Do we take a gamble? What happens? Because we're building stuff that's more simple than Legos, but it doesn't have the standardized brick structure like a Lego. Yeah. And we came to- That's not taking a risk. That's taking an L. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And ultimately, we just said, look, this is why we're doing this. If he can't build a 140-piece Lego Technic set correctly, and he's an outlier outside of our known personalities, like some of the guys, they didn't grow up with Legos, and so they're on the high end. Some of the guys that were in the 20-minute mark, they still buy and build Legos as adults, that type of thing. So quick side note. I am happy to say that I crushed everyone's times. And it's not because I'm an experienced Lego builder, I don't think. It's because the first thing I did was I- as Sort your parts? I, well, I sorted my parts, but I sharpened the saw as I'm, I just finished reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yep. And the habit number seven is sharpen the saw. So what you do, don't just do it, figure out a way to do it better. So I applied lean methodology the first thing I did is I went to the very back and I looked at the Lego page that shows all the components. Black was the most common Lego color. So I don't touch any black pieces. That's where the main pile goes. And I sort out all the other colors and what's left at the end is black. So now I'm not wasting motion. Now I'm only touching the components 
and pieces that are of lower quantities. And there was like white and there was beige. Okay, those two, they're similar. So white goes over here on the left, beige goes over here on the far right. And then there were different shades of blue, if I remember, and gray as well. And I did that. And it, that took about a minute and 20 seconds when I glanced at the clock, minute 20, minute 30. Most people would say that's a waste of time. The next thing I did was I look at the step one and it shows you all the parts that you need. Pick those out and keep them in one hand. Or if it requires three pieces, just keep two pieces in one and one in the other. Usually because I'm right-handed, you grab the main piece that you're going to be putting parts into with your left. That's your static hand. And I just did that. And at the end, I came to a time of 18 minutes and I went, okay, that was pretty good. Let me do it again. Let me see if I can have a different version of attacking this. The first time I dropped a part on the floor and I had to bend down, it rolled under a leg and I couldn't find it. I had to get my flashlight out, poke it out. So that took some time. The next thing I did is I took the large pieces and I put them almost like in a corral shape, like a U shape. So if I did drop a part, hopefully you would touch that thing. And I also, what we already do in our assembly area, if you drop a fastener, ignore it, just grab another. You can 3S it later. Yeah. And so I did that. You know, if I do drop a part, keep going. At the end, I may not need that part because an experienced builder knows that at the end of a Lego set, they give you extras. And so I brought my time down from 18 minutes to 1620. So I did it one more time, like several days later. And I just to get an average, maybe I was going too fast or a little too much coffee. And I got 1727, which is still way below the 22 second and definitely an outlier on the low end. So what I'm going to do, Andrew, is I'm going to take my team. If 10 guys built it, five guys, I'm just going to have them build it a second time. They're the control group. The other five, we're going to go through the lean methodology and see how much of a delta each team drops their speed. And we'll yep. say, you know, you did it again because you're familiar with it. It's your second time through. You did it again. You're also familiar with it, but we're using lean methodology. I'm going to make a video on that for sure. Would you watch that? Fun. I would watch it at 2x speed. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. I watch most things on 2x speeds. So one of the things that I did, I recently finished the book, Relevant Selling. She talks about how business develops what she calls a competitive advantage. And that has to be a thing that you are good at that is also uniquely valuable to the customer. Mm -hmm. Your company's awesome at something and the customer doesn't care, it's not a competitive advantage. If it's something that the customer really cares about and your company's not good at it, it's a huge liability. But finding that intersection point between things the customer values highly and things your company does exceptionally well and highlighting that, especially we don't have any outside salespeople making sales calls. But the idea that if you work in a company where you have salespeople, that you find out what your customers actually care about, quantify how your company performs at delivering those things, and then arm your salespeople with that information, and then they can actually make the most relevant pitch for the thing you're selling by understanding what the customer values. Is the customer valuing variety of options to choose from? Are they valuing thoroughness and availability of aftermarket support? Are they valuing speed of shipping? Are they valuing price? Are they valuing accuracy of shipping? A lot of people will say, if I get a great deal on it and there's something slightly wrong with it, I don't care that much. I got an amazing deal on it. Yeah. And other people, it's like, I will pay whatever it costs. I want it to be perfect. And I want it here on this day at this time. 
Mm-hmm. And those are different kinds of customers that are buying different things in different industries for different reasons. But if you understand what your customer wants and you can quantify how your company does on those things, mm-hmm. that's really powerful. So we crunched some numbers today. We've shipped over 17,000 orders since January 1 with a 98.3 one to two day window. That's great. And the single most common reason why a customer's package aged over 48 hours was that we work very hard to not ship anything if the shipping software flags the address as an exception for some reason. And so anytime a customer places an order and our shipping software warns us that the software thinks it's missing an apartment number or a suite number, or it can't verify the address. We put all those orders on hold and we contact those customers individually because yes, US Postal and yes, UPS do sometimes misroute, misplace, misdeliver, or lose packages. US Postal is less reliable in that regard than UPS, in my experience, but all carriers have problems. Things get lost in transit. Sometimes packages get damaged and the labels can no longer be read and they don't know where to return them to or deliver them to and stuff happens. But we can dramatically cut down on that by not sending out those corner cases where we're not sure if the address is complete or not. If we just say, ah, it's what the customer entered, probably okay, and just ship it, those ones are much more likely to produce a customer coming back to us and saying, my tracking number shows as delivered but I didn't get my package. And then Mm -hmm. we go, well, this is the address. And they're like, oh, I forgot to put apartment 202. And I'm like, okay, well, either as a business owner, I have to eat that shipment right now and reship it. Or I have to tell the customer, tough luck, man. We shipped to where you sent it to. And if you want it back, you better talk to your neighbors and your postal carrier and find out where they actually dropped it off. Mm Mm-hmm. The customer doesn't really care why it didn't get to them. They care they don't have it. And if we can prevent customers from having that negative experience of being put between the rock and the hard place of us not wanting to just eat somebody else's mistake and the customer not getting the thing that they paid for, if we can head that off at the pass by putting their order on hold, emailing them or calling them and saying, hey, this is the address you entered. Our software flagged it for this reason. And normally what we do is that we have a templated email that's available in our customer service software. We send it to them. We include a screenshot of exactly how the address appears in the software. Mm-hmm. So we're not risking retyping it and messing something up. We're just screenshotting what they entered and saying, please check out the address exactly as shown here and let us know if any other information is needed. And in some cases, we'll get an answer back with the customers like, oh no, it's a new address. I moved here four weeks ago. It's a new house and I'm getting these address warnings every time I order from anywhere. It's fine. My mail guy knows about it. I am getting packages at this address. Go ahead and send it. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Teflon, the armor of knowing we got the customer to confirm this address exactly as it will appear on the label. We can yep. send it. And if anything goes wrong, we know it wasn't because we sent something out with an incomplete address. Yeah. Wow. And How have you handled that in the past? Do you eat it? Almost always we just eat it. Yeah. yeah. And in some cases, we have really honest customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah. And we have often had customers be like, I didn't get my package. It shows us delivered. A little known fact that a lot of our customers don't know about till we tell them is 
your mail carrier has GPS tagging on the scanner they're using to scan your packages. If the package shows as delivered, your local postmaster can tell you where the carrier was standing when it got scanned as delivered. Right. And that has often led to, oh, they delivered it to the right number on the wrong floor, or they delivered it to the right number on the wrong street, or all kinds of things happen. Yeah. And a number of times we have had a customer miss a package. We reship the entire order. A week and a half later, the original package shows up and the customer emails us and says, hey, I just got the first shipment. How do I send it back to you? And That's in those amazing. cases, we just send them a prepaid label. Yeah. Thank you for letting us know. Just slap this label over the one that was on there and drop it back in the mail. Yeah. And that's happened a number of times, presumably some number of times that I don't know about. A customer has gotten both things and kept them and cackled in the corner like, ha ha, free stuff. Yeah. And eh, it happens. Yeah. I've only had that one time where it was delivered. It was a residential and it, the guy said, hey, I never got it. And I said, well, it shows it's delivered. Yeah, sorry. Don't know what to say. And then I said, well, look around. Maybe it's a neighbor. Talk to the UPS guy. And it's been too long, but it was a row device. It was a three thirty three hundred dollar order. Yeah, and coincidentally, I was talking with John Saunders, and because he's way more familiar with the, the East Coast than I am, and I told him the same story, and he says, "Oh, that's a really nice neighborhood." And I don't know if you'd have any theft, package theft there. No, and porch I went to pirates. The, well, yeah, porch that's what buccaneers, I please. But, yeah, that's true. <laughs> porch privateers. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> but so anyways, like I hop on Google maps and I do a street view and he's got this long driveway and that's one that I think will mildly, yeah, it'll, it, that's going to bother me until the end of my career, until I retire, because I'm pretty sure if I sent the PI in there, there might just be a, oh, don't device. even, don't even entertain that. I'm thought. not going to do it, but you know, it just bugs me. It, it's just, I have a strong sense of justice and most customers where that has happened and we have shipped stuff out. It's like, a shipping exception. That's UPS yep. is one of the things. Okay. We understand that. We'll send it to make up because we want to solve problems and haggling with a customer over a third party UPS's incompetence or weather related or whatever. It's not worth it. So I would rather lose money and keep a customer happy in that place and we'll ship it overnight. And that but, connects to the idea of lifetime value of customers. Sure. Because oh, yeah. it's really easy to get stuck on the transactional value of a single order and be like, yeah. I only had this much profit in that one order. Yeah. And if I reship it, that's wiped out and whatever. Yeah. But realizing that you are often dealing with a customer who, if they are thrilled with the service, mm -hmm. will be your customer again. Oh, yeah. For life. Yeah. We've yeah. won many, many customers over for life because of great service. If a customer knows that we did everything, even to take a loss yep. on our part, and it shows up, most people would say, hey, dude, it showed up four weeks later, which is a true story. We want to send it back. And I'm like, yep. do you want to send it back? Or can we give you like 20% off? And they're like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Just we'll keep, keep it. You'll eventually use it. So it's another thing. I think it's habit number five out of that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is seek, win scenarios where yep. we win, at least we cover the cost of materials and labor. We're not going to make money on it. That's fine. The customer yeah. wins because we overnighted it. Maybe we took a loss on shipping, but in the end, everyone wins. We have a customer for life. We're going to keep perpetuating that type of mentality in the company. So yeah. yeah. I'm way less concerned over a shipping carrier occasionally losing a package than I am over us making defects in our shop. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Of the two things that I could spend my time thinking about. Yeah getting rid of defects here so that 
every time we start a job, we get good sellable product at the end. That's way higher on my list. And for us, our average cart value is way less than a rotovice. Mm-hmm. So if I have to eat somebody's entire order, usually at most I'm out a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Or you and, know what? Reduce it, Andrew, to the cost of the materials too. That that helps right. me sleep better. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. It, and it even looking at the retail pricing, going, okay, the retail value on this order is X number of dollars. But if you're in a situation where in a lot of cases, in the price range that we're at and the kinds of products we make, if you can't reship the order a second time and break even and not fall into loss, your products probably aren't priced correctly. That's a great point. Your cost of goods and your cost of labor and then your retail markup to the public should be sufficient that these kinds of losses in the system are covered automatically mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, It's not that every single product you sell, you have to take all your labor and all your other costs and then double the price to get your retail price. But there should be a healthy enough margin that you're not all of a sudden, instead of making 10 bucks, you're losing 50. Yeah. If the ratios are that far off that a reship yeah. consumes all the profit from that order and the next order and the next order, mm-hmm. then your pricing ratios are way off. Yeah. My, my director of finance, when I was telling him this story, he said, well, look, did you write off the loss? Yeah, it was a $3,300 theft as a write-off. And he said, but the actual cost was not that. So you actually came out ahead, at least on the tax side. I went, all right, that's another part that makes me feel better. So you write off the retail value, not the cost, I guess. I could be wrong. I don't think I've ever actually written anything off. What do you mean? What? Expenses? I've never. Oh, no, expenses, but like an individual loss like that. Like, Yeah, yeah. In yeah. the course of my business life, I have never had to write off so far, uh-huh. knock on wood, any unpaid invoices from wholesale clients. I have that anybody just not pay and then have to write that off as a loss at the end of the year. Right. That has not happened. Yeah. And that's partly because most of my wholesale clients are people that I've known personally for a long time, and I'm very choosy about who we do ongoing work for. And anybody who we're doing one-time work for, normally we make them pay at least a deposit or most of the order up front. If we're doing, it's going to be a one-time thing, a couple thousand bucks. We don't extend net 30 to basically anyone on the first go round. Mm -hmm. It's too easy for somebody to skate on that. Mm -hmm. And if they don't need ongoing work from you, then there is no counterbalancing leverage of, hey man, we're not going to keep shipping you stuff if you don't pay us Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. I worked at a software company for a hot minute and going through the books, I was a director of operations, going through the books, there was this line entry in there, bad debt. And I said, yeah, I didn't even know what that was. And I asked him, what is bad debt? I thought debt? all debt was bad. <laughs> right. So he said, oh, we had this client, they owed us 15 grand and they're not going to pay. They've gone, they've ghosted us. So we're just going to put it under bad debt and write it off. I'm like, that kind of doesn't happen at least in the household that I grew up or 80s type of manufacturing, like people ended up like getting beat up, bricks through windows, lawsuits, like the bad debt thing just kind of didn't happen. Or you would work it out in court somehow. But no, yeah. that's why we don't extend net 30 terms as credit card. It's just whatever we eat the 3% fee and everyone gets their stuff. And we don't even pass that fee on. Lots of companies will collect like a 3% or 4% surcharge. surcharge. We don't do that. Nope. That's just weird. We value the payment and the money in our account the next day more than the 4%. So 
So that's the last question I have for today is how do you do that calculus? Because if you're a company that operates with sufficient cash on hand, Mm -hmm. the difference between getting the money now and getting the money 30 days from now probably is worth 3% in some cases to some people. And that can be a function of how volatile their expenses are. It can be a function of the personality and style of the owner and the way the company runs. But I don't particularly have a strong preference. I don't like paying fees. Mm -hmm. And the net 30 to get the whole amount makes a lot of sense to me. And I understand the way it actually unlocks business opportunity because they can take more product if they get 30 days to sell it and make the money to pay the invoice with. That makes sense. There are a lot of things that if I needed to sell them, I could go out, if I could buy them on net 30, I would be very confident that I could make the money I need with the stuff I bought in the time window I've got and pay that invoice off. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, but you're selling a retail product to a reseller most of the time in those cases, right? I'm usually selling a custom OEM product to a client. Okay. All right. Yeah. So for us, we're selling to the end user. They're not going to resell it. They're not there. So there's not that factor. So there's two things that stand out in that two company principles. Number one is no half measures. We want to be the best high-end work holding manufacturer in the world. We don't want to be a bank. So that's number one, no half measures. The second thing is another company principle is peace. It is not conducive to company peace when I'm stressed out frustrated about receivables. Yeah. Because either we have to make payroll or just the fact that again, strong sense of justice, you told me you sent a check, then it changed. Oh, the printer broke and all this running around, just pay on time. You're at 65 days. No, I'm over at credit card, that type of thing. It's just not worth it to me. Like the three-legged stool. I have, I told you that analogy yet. I don't recall. You may have. Sounds familiar, Rich. I've seen a three-legged stool before. Okay. So I'm going to make a video about it. So a picture of a stool with a seat, you want that seat to be level. The three legs are time, money, and energy. And it's a breakdown this way. You can move the length of one of them like money and buy back energy. You can take time and trade it for money. They're interchangeable. The most peace-filled business pursuits is one where you're on a level ground with all three legs, the same length because they're balanced out. So for me, if I am frustrated that some distributor is stretching us out to 90 days. When they put net 30 on the PO, it just steals energy from me. So that yeah. delta, that calculus, I think is what you said, is not worth the three, four, five percent that we have to pay yeah. on a credit card. It's just not. So yeah. Yeah. That's totally true. The mental and emotional energy that just gets chewed up on idle. Oh yeah. While it's just sitting there. Oh, yeah. Is significant. Yeah. With customers that I trust, though, mm-hmm. I always prefer that they pay me all the money in 30 days. If they prefer to pay credit card, I usually allow it. But generally, if I've got a wholesale customer and they're routinely paying invoices over two or $3,000, mm-hmm. I ask them to do ACH payments because I want as much of the money as I, pay, as I can get. Yeah. But the balance of those three things. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm transitioning at this point in my life in my company to the money leg was always really short on that stool for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the energy leg was really long. Yep. 
and it's getting shorter, but the money leg is getting longer. That's right. Yeah. Which is really exciting. It leads me to a different kind of approach to problem solving and thinking about what I want to do in the company. Mm-hmm. It also, that question of how long till I get paid always intensely motivates me to avoid government work whenever I can. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it's like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to do net 120 and we'll actually pay you nine months from now. Like, yeah. who knows? Yeah. The only things that I've really gotten strung out beyond terms on have been government connected or government related projects where it's just like, oh, the person who's supposed to pay me didn't get paid yet. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, I'm trying to like pull levers and pull strings and bribe, threaten, and cajole. But I'm not getting there. I'm not making progress here. Right. Yeah. And that is not a nice place to be. One of the few well-known distributors, MSC, Butler Brothers, what are some other, these well-known distributors, we'll give them net terms. Quite frankly, it's just easier. And we're giving them a slight discount as well. So we don't want to stack discount on an expense. So we'll do net terms with them. It's a bank loan at a negative interest rate. What? Yeah. It's just brilliant business strategy. But no, the ones that have stood out, I don't really see that stuff these days, but the ones that have stressed us out are pseudo-government, like schools. Mm -hmm. And we do want to work with schools. We don't want to work with big universities. One of the things that really crawls under my skin is we had a well-known Ivy League school come to us and ask for a discount. So I instantly Googled, insert Ivy League school name here, endowment. And it was in the billions. And so I said, no, we have a $100 million endowment limit on discounts Discount. to schools. <laughs> you need to uh, go to your admin and get some of that interest for this. You know, Of course, I'm being facetious. I won't say that. I just say you don't qualify for a discount. The $100 million endowment, that's our ceiling. That's how we rate it. So we want to work with community colleges, high schools that are really pushing that stuff. Of course, we want to do that. So we take totally. a loss there. We do a deep discount, but feel we're paying it back. Yeah. Well, and then eventually you can hire some of those kids. It's a long cycle. I'll tell you that. It is a long cycle. Yeah. I found out there's actually a really great high school about 45 minutes from me that has a pretty good machining program. Five Axis, they're running Pro Shop ERP. Wow. Paul Van Meter was there a couple months ago and invited me to come out and check out the shop. It's really extraordinary. Wow. And I actually had the guy who's the shop lead for all that program come and visit our shop. And we're going to continue to talk to those guys and see if each year they've got a new crop incoming students. And essentially, students have to audition for that program. They have to mm. apply and they have to get a certain number of like upvotes and get in. It's not just open to anybody who wants to enroll. Wow. And it was a really beautiful shop and they do shipping and receiving. They do screen printing. They do digital design. They do machining and manufacturing. They got lathe. They got laser. They got plasma. They got a whole bunch of cool stuff. Mm. And I would love to hire a couple of high school students out of there over the next few years who have already had a couple of years of experience doing five axis machining and doing different work holding projects. And it would be really, really valuable. And those students are going to be highly employable. Oh yeah, absolutely. Gosh, what a great future for those guys. 